Greetings from Berlin, everyone. I'm your host, Terrell Star, as usual. I've been traveling through Europe for work on my way to Ukraine, where I'll be covering the war. I'll talk more about that in upcoming episodes. But let's get into the news of the week from Ukraine, starting with the massive explosion at the Kahovka Dam in Russian-occupied Ukraine in the Kherson region on June 6. It's one of the biggest humanitarian and ecological crises to occur since the start of Russia's invasion of Ukraine back in February of 2022. The breach has caused massive flooding in settlements and towns in Kherson. Local authorities say that at least 2,500 people, including 140 children, have been evacuated out of the flooded areas, according to NBC News. Video images show roofs floating and water reaching to the very tops of homes, where people sit atop roofs pleading for help. Ukrainian soldiers are using drones to drop water to people and unable to get to dry land. It's really a catastrophic scene that's ongoing. Ukraine's Interior Minister reports that there are at least five people dead and 13 missing as a result of the flooding, according to the Kyiv Independent. Four of the five victims died in the Kherson Oblast, where 48 settlements have been flooded, 34 on the Ukrainian-controlled West Bank of the Dnipro River, and 14 on the Russian-occupied East Bank. As far as who's responsible, there's a lot of both sidesism going on in the media that really needs to stop. Let's take, for example, that U.S. spy satellites uh, detected an explosion at the Kahovka Dam just before it collapsed. Other foreign agencies detected a massive explosion before the dam collapsed as well. And Ukrainian officials say that they intercepted a call from a Russian soldier admitting that Russian forces mined the dam on purpose. Again, there's no clear evidence of who caused the dam's collapse or how it happened. Moscow and Kiev are blaming each other, but this isn't a time to balance both sides. Russia is occupying the territory in which the dam is located and is doing very little to evacuate locals to safety. In fact, there are reports from locals and media on the ground that Russian forces are shelling first responders who are trying to help people flee the flooding. Here is some reporting from Channel 4 News out of the UK about that. President Zelensky, though, he was in Kherson today. They're showing solidarity with the people affected by the flooding and seeing the disaster for himself. On the front line again, President Zelensky forced to confront a disaster that's threatening Ukraine's civilians and diverting the resources of the security services. In Kherson, even the simple act of rescue was disrupted by shelling today. To, to bring people here from all the, the river and the Russian territory. Oh, the sound of shelling resounded through Kherson today as officials accused Russia of deliberately targeting those trying to save lives. One man was killed by the shelling and several of the injured were treated in hospital. Some of the most vulnerable were rescued just in time as people stranded in their flooded houses began to run out of food and water. No matter how you slice it, this tragedy is the fault of Moscow, whose troops have no business in Ukraine. Beyond the human toll, Russia's invasion is causing devastating ecocide. The collapse of the Kahovka Dam will likely destroy hundreds of rare animal and plant species, according to the Ukrainian Environmental Ministry. During a presser with journalists in Kyiv Wednesday, Deputy Minister of Environmental Protection and Natural Resources Alexander Krasnolutsky told journalists, and I quote, um, per media outlet Euronews, that due to the comprehensive damage done to the area, this is the biggest ecocide in Ukraine since the beginning of the full-scale invasion. He goes on to say that we understand that what happened will result in colossal environmental damage to our ecosystems. And he also claimed that the flooding will destroy the biodiversity and natural reserves along its path. And here's another pressing issue. Not too far from the dam explosion is the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. 
the biggest in Europe. This explosion is impacting the safety of that facility. I'm going to play a clip from a recent CNN interview with International Atomic Energy Agency Chief Rafael Grossi explaining the situation. The dam collapse is downriver from the Zaporizhia nuclear plant, sparking fears, you can imagine, about nuclear safety. The UN's nuclear watchdog says there's no immediate risk and says they have enough water for months. You're seeing there in your math roughly the position of it. But the head of the International Atomic Energy Agency has been quoted by Russian state media saying they won't be able to keep pumping cooling water from a reservoir to the plant if the water level drops too low. Well, to explain all this, the IEA's Director General, Rafael Mariano Grossi, joins me now live from Vienna. Mr. Grossi, great uh, to have you on the show. Thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us. Uh, bring us up to date, if you could, on the situation as you understand right now at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Thank you. Thank you very much. As always, a, present to talk to, uh, a pleasure to talk to you. Um, what I can say, we are monitoring this uh, by the minute, I should say, since this um, occurred uh, yesterday. Uh, the the levels of the uh, of the water are of course uh, going down, decreasing quite quite rapidly. Um, obviously, uh, the dam down south uh, being destroyed, um, the flux of, of water is unimpeded, and and this is of course having an automatic impact on the amount of water that the nuclear power plant has um, to be integrated into the cooling system. Uh, of the plant. I don't want to get too technical here, yeah. but just to explain that uh, there is a reservoir there uh, and then uh, a, a number of uh, internal channels that ensure that there is water in circulation uh, permanently, so to speak, uh, so that the reactors, you're, you are, you're um, showing them uh, there, uh, get the necessary uh, cooling. Of course, uh, if, uh, if the plant uh, were to run out of uh, water, the, then we would have a very serious situation. What we said, what I said, is that there doesn't seem to be an imminent risk of a dry up of the water um, availa available there, but the situation is serious. In so, in so far as this, we are seeing this diminishing, it's between five and seven centimeters Per hour, so it's 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 steadily uh, going down. So we have to monitor it very very carefully. This is why I am going back to Zaporizhia next week. I've been there already twice, and I'm going to return there uh, with a reinforced um, team of um, uh, nuclear safety uh, experts from mm. from the IAEA uh, to 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 have a, a more complete, more comprehensive assessment of where we are. Black Diplomats will be keeping up with all news developments on this story, so please stay tuned. Okay, the feature interview for this week is with Nardine Kishwani, Palestinian activist and friend of Fatima Muhammad, the Yemeni-American 2023 law graduate whose City University of New York Law School commencement speech evoked the ear of political Elites and everyone else who doesn't think that white supremacy is still a thing in the United States and refuse to accept the overwhelming evidence of Israel's apartheid against Palestinians. Fatima has been facing harsh criticisms from public officials and media, so she has been hunkering down to protect herself. Black diplomats reached out to interview Fatima, but she's not taking any media requests at the moment, understandably so. So Nardine will be taking her place to talk about the CUNY speech, as well as the attacks against Fatima and why it's so important to push back against the notion that critiquing Israel equals anti-Semitism. Here's our conversation. Nardine, um, we've been communicating for the past week or so, and um Wanted to really thank you for taking time because I know that this avalanche that your good friend Fatima uh, has been experiencing has been overwhelming and you've been a support system for her. So I just want to thank you for taking time. Of course. No, thank you for covering this and taking the time. And I know Palestine is a controversial issue and a lot of people don't want to touch it. So 
I really appreciate that, that, you know, you're not fearful of that. Um, and you want us on here to set the story straight. Yeah, I appreciate that. So before I get into the specifics of Fatima's speech and then your work, I'm, I'm thinking about you as a human being. So just wanted to check in on the, your mental health. So how have you been doing? You know, when this first started, um, it felt like everything just kind of set ablaze, right? Like everything went on fire. And now in New York, uh, we're getting all the smoke from the Canadian fires. Um, the sky is red. So it's like, you know, uh, life imitating, I guess, like what's going on with, with everything here. So hopefully the fire dies down soon and out of it emerges, you know, something beautiful um, where we're able to educate people about Palestine further because of um, what happened, because of all the avalanche and backlash. Yeah. And I want to get into Fatima's speech because I, I listened to it multiple times. I also listened to yours from last year, <laughs> you know, just comparing the two. I think most people who, first of all, are quote unquote outraged didn't even listen to the whole thing they mm -hmm. listened to the snippets and even if they listen to the whole thing I think people are they just have blinders on and they refuse to see what you're talking about in regards to challenging the apartheid settler colonial state of, of of Israel and let's be quite frank so is America America is a settler <laughs> colonial exactly. state as well and I think it's um you know I listened to it and it just reminds me of Malcolm X's, uh, you know, um, chickens coming home to roost. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, it's his commentary there. Um, but I just want to play a snippet of what Fatima was talking about and then we can unpack it. So we're going to listen to a few lines from her talk that got everybody, not everybody, a certain group of of people up, up, up in arms against her. In this moment of celebrating who we are, I want to celebrate CUNY Law as one of the few, if not the only law school, to make a public statement defending the right of its students to organize and speak out against Israeli settler colonialism. <laughs> that this... That this is the law school that passed and endorsed BEDS on a student and faculty level. Recognizing that absent a critical imperialism settler colonialism lens, our work and this school's mission statement is void of value. That as Israel continues to indiscriminately rain bullets and bombs on worshipers, murdering the old, the young, attacking even funerals and graveyards as it encourages lynch mobs to target Palestinian homes and businesses as it imprisons its children, as it continues its project of settler colonialism, expelling Palestinians from their homes, carrying the ongoing Nakba that our, silent is no, that our silence is no longer acceptable. We are, we are the student body and faculty that fought back when investor-focused admin attempted to cross the BDS picket line, saying loud and clear that Palestine can no longer be the exception to our pursuit of justice, that our morality will not be purchased by investors. So there was about 13 minutes to the entirety of her speech, but the tone and tenor of it to me was challenging state power and challenging oppression. It's no different than the ways in which Black Lives Matters activists speak out or any group of people who speak out against an oppressive state. And the way that the media cycle, particularly conservative media in New York, we got the New York Post, then you got Fox News, of course, was saying that you're just a bunch of people who just hate Jews, right? So they just completely flipped it. I'm just wanted to ask you, were you a bit surprised by the manner in which people, certain people responded? And why is it that year after year, anytime you question the policies of the state of Israel, it's flipped into an accusation of anti-Semitism? 
Yeah, I mean, I wasn't surprised um, that, you know, she was called anti-Semitic for this because this is something that's been going on for so long. Anytime anybody speaks up for Palestinian liberation, they're called anti-Semitic, particularly if they come from a background um, where, you know, they're visibly Muslim or Arab or black. Even, you know, we see black people, um, Palestinians, Arabs, Muslims just automatically labeled that as if we don't have um, the coherence to have a legitimate political grievance with an ethno-nationalist state that literally genocided our people in order for it to, to live on, um, you know, and as if we can't oppose oppression, what, even if we're not Palestinian, um, without having some like conspiracy um, to be like anti-Semitic. So I wasn't surprised that that happened, but the level to which it got um, was a little surprising given that, you know, most of these criticisms are reserved for like fringe groups um, who don't really like, you know, get into the mainstream as much. But of course, we know that mainstream media picked on her, uh, not just because they could easily make the anti-Semitic accusation, because people are going to believe a hijabi Muslim woman is going to be inherently anti-Semitic, because we still have that racism, that Islamophobia in this country, but also because she um, critiqued uh, imperialism, capitalism. She critiqued how um, Eric Adams dignified the murder of Jordan Neely. And by the way, Eric Adams was at that graduation. He spoke at it. Um, I was there. I listened to both of their speeches. Thunderous applause um, for Fatma's speech throughout the, the, you know, um, her, her talk. And then when Eric Adams talked, the graduates got up, turned their back on him. Um, the students heckled him, you know, so it actually shows that she's the one who the student body and faculty at CUNY Law supports, and he's not. Meanwhile, in the mainstream media, um, it's being flipped the other way. And her critique of the NYPD also got the New York Post um, to talk about it a little more. They literally posted a picture, an old picture of like police officers crying for some reason um, <laughs> as the headline, you know, um, as the main picture. Um, in response to her critique. And then, you know, also she talked about liberation for so many other people. She talked about um, lawyers who are fighting ACS, the system that takes away children from families that's deeply racist. She talked about the asylum work um, that we've been doing. And of course, none of that made the cut because they're going to take what falls under so-called like culture wars they're going to take the critiques of the nypd and the u.s state and the law and israel um, and turn that back on us people were saying crazy like they were saying things like you know how can a, a law student say that the legal system in the u.s is deeply racist like this is unhinged of her meanwhile that's literally what the entire student body thinks and just to remind people lynching was uh wasn't outlawed it, there was only a ban against lynching in the u.s um it only became illegal in 2019 so yes the law is deeply racist because we live um in a settler colony as you mentioned um that was built off of the genocide of the indigenous people um and the enslavement um of african people um, which is also a form of genocide in and of itself. But, you know, as we know, there's people who've been trying to silence this conversation, um, not just in New York, but across the United States. Yeah, it, because I was going on uh, Twitter to see exactly wh- who in the political sphere was 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 condemning this her her speech and you had a whole lot of democrats many of whom are supported by apac by the way um who who are supported by israeli lobbyist groups financially and so in a way you can understand it but what troubled me particularly from people of color uh who were going at fatima was that especially as a black person and that because you know i told you i went to palestine earlier this year it's difficult for me to go to Hebron West you know go out throughout the West Bank go down streets in which the law literally calls the streets sanitized streets i.e. where place, places where Israelis um, can walk and everyone else except for Arabs you know the unsanitized streets are for the Arabs being what really made me sick was going through the checkpoints, going walking through streets 
that Palestinians can no longer walk and just watching these Palestinians having to take us, you know, stop at this checkpoint with somebody with an armed um, um, uh, um, Israeli Defense Forces soldier ready to shoot at any moment. And I could walk through. I, for me, I just could not fathom anyone supporting that. You can't walk through those streets, experience that and feel like and then in the same breath condemn someone like Fatima. And so that was the thing that really got me. But I'm, I'm curious about you. It's um, why do you think that the political structure is that it is that they quickly rally behind Israel at the expense of supporting the apartheid that's going on uh, against Palestinians? I think one of the main reasons is that in order for the U.S. Um, to acknowledge like what Israel is doing is wrong, it would have to acknowledge, um, you know, the horrible history of this country. Um, and beyond that, you know, Joe Biden said it himself, if Israel doesn't exist, he literally said if Israel doesn't exist, then they would have to create one because um, it operates as essentially a, a military base for the U.S. Um, in the Middle East where it spies on, it bombs, it um, you know, embeds itself in the political um, structure of the Middle East so that, you know, U.S. interests can continue to be um, gathered. So I think that that's one of the main reasons. And we can tell this is the case by the fact that 10 millions of our tax dollars every single day, this is not an exaggeration, it's a fact, instead of being, you know, put back into our communities here where we need it, it's being used um, to kill Palestinians because that those that money goes explicitly to the Israeli military forces every single day, $10 million. We've been doing this um, for over a decade at this point. Um, and I think it's, you know, when you start to conflate the ideology behind the settler colonial state that pillages, murders, assaults, prisons and demolishes pal uh, Palestinian people, their neighborhoods, their communities, their homes, um, and their entire society. When you conflate that uh, with the religion, you know, you're ultimately saying that Palestinians and those who speak out um, in support of our human rights and our right to dignity and liberation um, cannot stand against the Israeli state without inherently being labeled as bigoted towards Jewish people. But, you know, we can say that we're against the genocide of indigenous people here, that we're against the way that the U.S. has been brought about um, and question whether the U.S. has a right to exist, question where, when, whether any of these um, settler colonies have the right to exist, uh, because the way that they've been brought about has been on the expense, on the blood, on the graves um, of another people. So, you know, I think that the U.S. is not really ready to, you know, look at that for itself. And it's extending the settler colonial solidarity um, to another country that is a mirror of an image of itself. Before I go on to listen to your speech from last, for last year, um, a lot of people don't know what settler colonialism is. Do you mind explaining that to us, please? I can do it in the context of, of Palestine. You know, prior to 1948, there was no country called Israel. It was Palestine. Jews, Muslims, and Christians lived together um, in peace. My grandparents lived there, all four of them. They tell me stories about, even though we're Muslims, how my grandma would go Easter, my grandmas would go Easter egg hunting, and they would, you know, celebrate the, the Christian holidays as well, and how they would go to the Jewish butchers for their meat, because, you know, the kosher standards of meat are even higher um, than halal. And, you know, this is how we were living before. Uh, but, you know, a European um, Zionist, which is the ideology behind creating the Israeli state named Theodore Herzl, created um, this idea that um, Jewish people from all over the world should migrate to Palestine and create a state there. Now, in order for that to happen, if you look at history, 750,000 Palestinians were expelled in 1948 the same year that Israel was created, and 531 Palestinian villages were de depopulated. So, you know, they had militaries, uh, which wasn't an official military yet, really just like terrorist gangs that would go into Palestinian villages, 
rape women, shoot families. Um, in one village, it just came out, Tantura, they literally had the men dig their own graves before they shot them into it. And these are things that even Israeli historians have admitted. And, you know, in these villages where they got all these Palestinians to leave or they killed them or they scared them or they kicked them out or bombed them, um, they replaced them and they, they started living in these villages. And now what you look at is called Israel um, is where all these towns and Palestinian villages that were there before, um, whose you know people who used to live there have either been killed or forced to leave. To this day, uh, Palestinian refugees remain the largest refugee population in the world. Um, Palestinians live an hour away from their original towns and villages, whether it's like they're refugees in Gaza or they're refugees in na- neighboring Arab countries. But you know, basically. These settlers, these people who lived in Europe, who lived in, you know, other parts of the world, came to Palestine with the intention of starting a state there. Um, and in order for that to happen, they had to kill um, or remove the indigenous population. And we see that here as well, you know, in the U.S., manifest destiny, this idea that the white man um, has the power, has the right to take as much land as, as he wants and build a new world. And it doesn't matter that they have to give um, diseases to indigenous people that they know they don't have the immunity um, to defend against or create fake treaties um, with them where they're just going to steal their land anyway. Um, so, you know, we see this in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, where you look at um, Aboriginal populations that have been wiped out, um, whose history has been decimated. And genocide isn't just in the form of killing people in mass. It's also destroying their cultural institutions, their culture, you know, in all these schools where they forced um, ab- indigenous and Aboriginal people to assimilate, um, you know, to to let go of their identities um, and just create this, you know, new new country. Um, and that's kind of, I guess, uh, uh, an overview of how settler colonialism manifests in Palestine um, and what it, you know, it relates to other places in the world. That was pretty comprehensive. What's interesting about this about this conversation is you know we think about ukraine my specialty is in eastern european politics i'm actually traveling to ukraine right now i have my flak jacket on my on right to my side i'm in berlin and then i'm going to warsaw um as part of my reporting in fact i'm I'm interviewing a a palestinian german woman tomorrow i'm doing a little short video documentary about her and her efforts um, because she's also sued the state of Germany over their attempts to repress, you know, repress her activism. And so actually, you you know who she is. I'm sorry. I'm acting like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, Anna, Anna. Yes. Yeah. You know, Anna, Anna, um, who she is. So I'm going to be, I met with her Monday and I'm going to be meeting with her tomorrow. And, and so, I think about Ukraine because a lot of the things that talking points that you're mentioning, Ukrainians say the very similar things about Russia. And in fact, when you just say that genocide is not just about killing, it's about replacing the culture, which is exactly what the Russian Empire has done. Um, The Russian Federation continues to do the kidnapping of children. But you see a difference in the response to it. You see... Uh, one in the refugee crisis across Europe, relatively speaking, relative to Palestinians, of course, you know they have the red carpet rolled out for them, and just a, as opposed to the Black Africans who are fleeing, just a vastly different experience. And so, all these talking points that you're talking about in, in regards to settler colonialism, um, similar talking points are used with Russia, but you have a, the West that's embracing it more in ways that they don't do for Palestine. And we could talk about whiteness as being a part of it because it definitely is. Um, what, I, what I see is in it is that you're dealing with, it's easier, the West is really good with picking out a boogeyman because we know Putin who he is and he's really bad, but because Putin is anti-West. But... In order for the United States government to fully embrace the term apartheid towards Israel, we have to think about our own reparations. 
We have to think about the indigenous, America has to think about the indigenous people that butchered and murdered and raped and pillaged in order to make this state. So they're like peers. America and Israel are essentially peers. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, this whole Ukraine thing exposed so much because uh, it shows how, you know, you can fight um, against an invading, occupying power. And in one instance, you're called a freedom fighter. And in another instance, you're called a terrorist. And nothing illustrates this more than this Palestinian girl um, who's very light skinned. She's very blonde. So she doesn't, you know, have the typical or stereotypical look of Palestinian. She's been um, even though, you know, we have people in all different shades um, and colors. We have black Palestinians um, as well. And I'm sure you saw so much when, uh, so many different, you know, uh, backgrounds and looks when you went to Palestine. But she, you know, she looks a little bit more white, even though I wouldn't say her features um, are. And she's been fighting these Israeli soldiers um, since she was a little girl, you know, they come into her village and there's clips of her as a little girl yelling at them. Her name is Ahed Tamimi. Um, and she actually went to jail um, for eight months for slapping an Israeli soldier who had just shot her cousin in the head um, and who was in, who was literally on her private property, like in her home. Um, and she was she wasn't even 18 years old at the time. And she went to jail for eight months. Nobody cared about her. When the war in Ukraine started happening, Ukrainians started taking clips of her fighting Israeli soldiers and claiming to people that she's a Ukrainian fighting a Russian soldier. And she was going old videos of her were going viral again. And people were supporting her saying all these things because they thought she was a little Ukrainian girl since, you know, she could pass for that. But when she was Palestinian and when she went to jail for that for eight months, Nobody bat an eyelash. We had protests for her here in New York City as the Palestinian community and people who support Palestine. But, you know, for the most part, most people didn't hear about it. Wow. And I'm just looking at a photo of uh, I, I hear, yeah, you, yeah, I can look at her skin tone. I'm looking at photos of her as a child. Yeah, it's it's I can see how she could pass. But <laughs> let's go to your speech from 2022, because I don't know if this is basically this is the consecutive years in which um, speakers that were speaking true to the palace power about Palestine were selected. And so I listened to your talk as well, and you were speaking along some of the similar lines. So let's take a listen. A few days ago, renowned Palestinian journalist Shireen Abu Akhle was shot in the head and killed wearing a press vest while covering Israeli raids in Jenin, Palestine. This is one of many instances of death and destruction Palestinians have faced the last 74 years. Meanwhile, the double standards are on full display when the Chancellor of CUNY only releases selective statements on freedom and is silent on Palestine. Beyond silence, during Ramadan, while many of us were still fasting and studying for finals right before Eid, which, by the way, CUNY Central still does not give Muslims time off for, the Chancellor decided to go on a normalizing trip to Israel with 10-plus presidents and deans of different CUNY campuses. This was after CUNY Law Student Government passed a resolution demanding CUNY cease collaboration with Israel. This delegation, which did not include anybody from CUNY law, did not care for our resolution and do not care when Palestinians at CUNY are attacked by Zionist organizations. In fact, upon her return, John Jay President Carol Mason canceled the upcoming Palestine Lives Conference scheduled to take place on her campus. This is why this trip is an affront to everyone at CUNY fighting for liberation. It normalizes Israel's colonization and murder of the Palestinian people, and it shows that that part of CUNY's leadership is disconnected from and unaccountable to the CUNY community. But we will continue to hold this institution accountable. So what's stood out to me was you talking about the trips that the um the campus leadership the cuny leadership made to israel they're indoctrination trips right and so to speak um and this is very common you have these israeli lobbyist groups that 
have millions upon millions of dollars that they invest into these trips so that they can get political figures thinking about this subject. Now, here's the ironic part. Most elected officials don't know jack shit about foreign affairs. Like, they just don't. But what I find interesting is that the Israeli, uh, a lot of Israeli lobby groups have been very keen and very strategic in getting their talking points in order and getting these um, elected officials across all racial backgrounds because, you know, it could be Latinx people, it could be black people, it could be, you know, it could be people of, um, you know, various people from the Middle East, et cetera, on these trips. And it's that one quote unquote foreign policy point that they can get about 10 talking points on and understand. I just find that so ironic, but I wanted to ask you, what do you, you know, what, what, how impactful have these types of trips been in skewing the thinking, you know, in, in, in a lot of people's favor of, of the state of Israel that is that that um that empowers elected officials to just turn a blind eye to what they're doing to Palestinians. Yeah, I think these uh you know propaganda trips um, are ways for you know Zionists to basically show them like what these politicians could have, all the money they could have, all the support, all the free trips, you know, all the um, individual perks that they can get for their political career. Um, if they support this. And we know that the, it doesn't just stop at politicians. Um, you know, students um, have been fighting against birthright trips uh, for, you know, years now. Birthright trips where, like, any Jewish person in the world who doesn't have any connection to Palestine can go there, can get on a free sponsored trip um, to go there. And, you know, it's, it's a propaganda trip where they're always interacting with, like, the hottest um Israeli soldiers. So they're like, oh, this is what you could have, like, you know, kind of putting all these ideas into their heads. Meanwhile, Palestinians like myself, I was born as a Palestinian refugee in Jordan, an hour away from Palestine, because my family had already been kicked out. And all four of my grandparents were born there. My father was born there. I'm not allowed to even visit. The last time I tried to visit, I was 20 years old. They interrogated me for 16 hours um, and told me that I'm never allowed to come back um, to Palestine again. And of course, it's like the Israeli soldiers saying that because for Palestinians, we don't control our borders at all. It's completely controlled um, by Israeli forces. But, you know, these trips are just one of the introductory measures of, you know, all the funding, political support. Um, and just getting that whole like apparatus behind these politicians. And, you know, we for them, for many of these politicians, we already know the way that they got there is by being a sellout. So um, this is just like putting that times 10. Yeah, I, I definitely hear you. Um, I, I want to learn more about your organization that you found in your chair of uh, within our type uh, within our uh, lifetime. And it's, um, you know, United, um, excuse me, United for Palestine uh, within our lifetime, United for Palestine. And so you are very much involved in pushing for the Palestinian cause. Just tell us about your organization and the things that you do. Yeah, I mean, when we started our goal, because we have such a big Palestinian community here in New York, our goal was to revitalize that revolutionary spirit that every Palestinian had, uh, because so many of us felt silenced um, in the U.S., particularly like you see what happens when we talk about Palestine. We get attacked. People are afraid. Our People grow up and their parents like they're Palestinian. Their parents are telling them, don't say anything. Don't talk about like, don't tell the truth. Don't even tell people you're a Palestinian because they know that we're hunted down and attacked wherever we are um, simply for being who we are. And especially if we support, you know, our struggle. And I didn't want us to continue to have that fear. Um, so, you know, we started organizing protests um, and, you know, first protests, it's like 20 people, then 100 people. And then in, in 2021, we had tens of thousands of people marching the streets um, in, almost, in so many different boroughs in Manhattan and Queens and Brooklyn, um, fighting for Palestinian liberation. And, you know, for the first time in so long, I don't feel like people are lying or hiding their Palestinian identity. Like I literally grew up with 
with Palestinians who, when you ask them, they would say they're Lebanese or they're Jordan, they're Jordanian because like they're refugees there, but not say that they're um, actually Palestinian because of all the backlash that comes with that. And for the first time, we see people, you know, embracing that and not just saying they're Palestinian, but saying that Palestinians deserve liberation, dignity, rights. Um, and, you know, a lot of what we're seeing now, the reaction um, of the Zionist political establishment of APAC is trying to undo um, all of the gains that we made um, in 2021, where a lot of people were looking at Palestine for the first time um, and supporting our struggle. Are you optimistic that the American public is becoming more aware of what's happening? Because there is a recent study that showed that Democrats, at least, generally Democrats across the board, uh, more so in previous years, have become more sympathetic to Palestinians. I'm pretty sure you've seen this um, this, this, this study. And, and does that give you hope that the work that you've been doing, your peers have been doing, has been making a difference? I mean, that's why it's called within our lifetime is that, you know, we believe that not only is Palestinian liberation inevitable, but that it will happen um, in our in our lifetime, hopefully. And, you know, when we see such negative reactions against people like Fatima for her speech, it sometimes feels like hopeless. It sometimes feel like everyone's against us. But when you really break it down, that's not the case. It's just a few people in power. Murdoch owns how many of these news outlets that, you know, came out against Fatima, the same right wing um, media circulation. But in reality, 99% of people at the law school support the Palestinian liberation struggle. The Jewish Law Students Association has been staunchly supporting us. Um, even when I got attacked last year and, and um, even before, you know, the entire time I've been in law school, they've been amazing. And, you know, I never thought that I would go to a law school one day where everybody around me supported Palestine, knew about Palestine. And that's the truth. I mean, that's what we see here. Um, and that's the problem with the rest of the world. You know, you see a lot of like Arab governments normalizing the Israeli Zionist state, working with them, like, you know, the Egyptian government doing that. Meanwhile, look at the news a few days ago, an Egyptian soldier um, was killed because he killed three Israeli soldiers, um, clearly showing that he's not um, on the same, you know, he's not on the level where his government is. The Egyptian people support the Palestinian liberation struggle by any means necessary. The people of the world support us. Look at what happened with the World Cup. Every time Morocco had a win, you know, while their country was starting to normalize relations with Israel, um, they put out the Palestinian flag. You know, Qatar was, this is the first time they allowed Israelis, you know, to come um, travel to Qatar. But, you know, anytime an Israeli tried to give an interview, with anybody there, no matter what background they came from, they refused it because they support Palestine. So when we look at the world, we see the masses, um, you know, turning to our favor more and more everyday people. Um, meanwhile, those in power are becoming even more aggressive, are grasping at straws, um, are trying to make it seem the other way to hide the reality um, and the inevitable. So yeah, I'm very hopeful. And um, the people who are in control of the media and the narrative will use these tactics that a lot of them are psychological tactics to make you feel like all is lost. But when you go outside and touch grass, talk to actual people, um, you see that, you know, that's not reflective um, of, of the real people of the world who support us. And I lost track of that poll, but I have it in front of me now. It's a Gallup survey. And so it basically emphasizes that still most U.S. adults sympathize with Israel uh, is 54 percent and Palestinians, 31 percent. Um, and. Here's the thing. Um, what is what they showed back in 2016? 53 um, percent of Democrats said they sympathize more with Israel, Israelis versus 23 percent with uh, the Palestinians. And so the point of it is that. Uh, there was an increase in how people are starting to view this subject. And there's a lot in this in, in, in the survey. But what I think it is, is that I think that these uh, these Israeli groups that are attacking, that have been attacking you, that have been attacking Fatima, they've connected their identity of being a Jew to their oppressive state. 
And so by default, if you, and I think they, they've been very good with that over the years, and maybe I'm wrong with that. And so their whole identity is tethered to abuse. It's very similar to how white people here in the United States are pushing back against critical race theory, um, even challenging it in high school, even though it's not taught in high school, right? It's not even taught generally in undergrad. And so it just reminds me all of white fragility. You know, you question the state, you question and challenge the abuse of policing uh, practices here. You're challenging white people for who they are because who they are is connected to oppression. And in order for them to exist, others can't, right? And I think people are coming aware of what of, of that dynamic, and they're saying, "Wait a minute, um, we this this you know, we we have to rethink this." So I, I'm definitely happy that you came on the show to talk to us about this because we need more people like you to come on and talk and explain. Uh, explain these things and even for people like me who are continuing to expand my knowledge on Palestine but um, I want to ask you how is Fatima doing I know she has not spoken to media and I understand that because she's being harassed intensely but as a friend of hers can you tell us how she's managing everything yeah I mean um, not to get into it you know too much but she she doesn't regret this and you know if she could go back in time and give a different speech she wouldn't she would give the exact same speech and she said this to me um and of course the tactics that you know these zionists are using that these publications are using are absolutely disgusting harassing her trying to figure out where she you know um where relatives live like the new york post wrote something like she was contacted at a relative's house like you know how desperate can you be zionist sending death threats um trying to dox her you know things that i've experienced um as well and you know we know that you know this is something that palestinian activists have to deal with and uh, while we shouldn't have to deal with it we look at what's happening in palestine back home and that gives us strength we looked at you know, the Palestinian child, two years old, who was killed the other day by Israeli soldiers. And while, you know, what we're going through is also immeasurably difficult, um, it's still nothing in comparison to what Palestinians living on the ground have to face every single day because of Israeli Zionist um, oppression. So, uh, you know, I think a lot of this is is coming out um a lot of this is showing, you know, how desperate Zionists go and how they make up accusations of anti-Semitism to silence people like Fatima. But, you know, the love and outpouring of support that she got from the Palestinian community, uh, the Muslim community at large, um, the legal community, Center for Constitutional Rights, New York Civil Liberties Union, um, the National Lawyers Guild, CARE, the, the Council on American Islamic Relations, all put out statements in support of her. And if I was going to sit here and mention every org that put out a statement in support of her, I'm going to be speaking for the like the next 20 minutes <laughs> straight. But the point is, like, there's also a lot of love um, that's being put out there. And of course, you know, she was elected to be in this position by her classmates. That means everyone knew, for the most part, what she was going to talk about and support her. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of outpouring of love and support and, um, you know, that is always going to trump over, um, the hate and the vilification and the violence, um, that those who speak up for Palestine have to endure every day. So, you know, I don't want to, um, just gloss over everything that's been going on, um, with her as well, but, um, I know that, She's a very she's a strong person. It takes a, uh, an amazing, courageous person to say the words um, that she did to begin with. And, you know, as long as we support each other in community, it makes it all worth it. Has any of your advocacy hurt any career pursuits that you've pursued? And is this a common issue with your fellow Palestinian uh, activists well you know palestinian activists are blacklisted on websites like the canary mission now the adl the anti-defamation league um, are also trying to do the same so i mean i wouldn't want to work anywhere where i would have to appease zionists in order for there to work there so for me personally um it's not much of an issue but there's been people 
um, who work at city jobs and things like that, that have been presented contracts to say that they can't publicly support a boycott of the state of Israel if they want to work there. Um, and there's been, you know, legal challenges uh, to that. So there's no doubt that, you know, there's a ton of places that, you know, aren't going to be hiring or are going to, you know, um, look at Palestinians differently because of what, you know, all of these um, slander and defamation online about us says. But, you know, at the end of the day, I don't I don't think that we need to be working at, at places like that um, to begin with. And, you know, at the end of the day, the school knows that we're on the right. They can make up lies and say that this is hate speech all they want. So why did they let us graduate? Why did they let us go to the school? Why did they let us speak when they know that these are the things that we're going to say? They know that this is freedom of speech. They know that we have the right to say it. They know that we're not doing anything wrong. Um, and it's just politics that's being used against us to silence us, to create this new definition of anti-Semitism that nobody um, who thinks logically would believe, you know, I criticize Saudi Arabia all the time. Does that make me Islamophobic? No, you know. Um, so I, yeah, I think that um, a lot of these tactics to make you feel like you're never going to get a job or your whole career or, or future is going to be ruined. It's like 80% psychological. They want us to believe that so that we're the ones to silence ourselves. Um, but that's why, you know, they're lashing out so hard against Fatima is that she showed not only can you say the things that she said, but you can excel, you can go to law school, you can graduate, you can be elected by your peers to be the one to speak on behalf of the entire graduating class. Um, and that, you know, makes their narrative that if you speak up for Palestine, your future is ruined. Um, that makes it fall apart. Yes, we'll be attacked. We'll be in the media for a little bit. We'll have all these scare tactics around us. But ultimately, you know, we're still succeeding. Like a win is a win. Like at the end of the day, she's winning. Well, that's a great way to end. So um, thank you for taking time to talk with us. I mean, I really appreciate it. I'm glad you went to Palestine, too. That makes my my heart really happy. Um, even though I can't go, it, it's so amazing to know that other people are going, seeing the truth, coming back, um, and giving a platform um, to people like us to, to continue the struggle. Thank you. Thank you all for tuning in to this week's episode of Black Diplomats. Please give us a five-star rating on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to us. Also support our work financially on Cash App at Cash Sign Black Diplomats, Venmo at Black Diplomats, and on PayPal at paypal.me backslash Black Diplomats. Thank you very much, everybody. Have a good rest of your weekend and talk to you all next week. Yeah, I'm from America, gotta go get this job. Hold on, putting no makeup for this fake ass facade. Buy guns, be buy guns, but buy guns and spray. Tired of biting my tongue, I say what I gotta say. My sweetest dream was to live free with the brigade, but I'm from America, they soon take dreams away. How to channel success while no one's guiding me, uh. Trying to live and build wealth while in variety, uh. I really need someone to please enlighten me on. I'm gon' do this shit while in society uh. I was a prodigal son lost in desire Didn't speak on a lot, imagination was my fire Ignorant but innocent, so consequences wasn't dire Was a fiend for a dream, nigga, I was just trying to get higher